My name is Dr. Jasmine Ghani. I'm a lecturer in international relations of the Middle East at the University of St. Andrews. We're sitting in my office, which is on the scores. It just overlooks the sea. For those of you who have never been to St. Andrews, it's a lovely historic town, cobbled streets, Gothic buildings. It does feel as if you've gone back in time, and it very much revolves around the university and the ethos of learning and knowledge. My area of specialization is on U.S.-Syrian relations. This is something that I began working on long before the conflict began. It stemmed from a legal research I did before my doctorate, which is looking at the collaboration between the United States and Syria over the rendition of terror suspects after the war on terror. From that, the project expanded to look at Syrian-U.S. relations historically since the start of the 20th century, because very little had actually been written and researched about this particular area of Middle Eastern politics. Since the conflict, I've continued to pursue that area, and U.S.-Syrian relations has expanded to include regional dynamics as well as the relationship between the United States and Russia. Of course, it doesn't just concern the states and the governments of the two countries, but also brings into play the opposition, so non-state actors, as well as the Syrian diaspora, and the impact of the Syrian refugee crisis in security in Europe, as well as the United States and in the region. Syria has been in the news for the past seven years because of the raging conflict that started in 2011. This has very much dominated people's perception of Syria. It's now associated with the devastation of conflict, with the fact that it's the major humanitarian crisis that we've seen since the Second World War with the refugee crisis. In the seven years, it's estimated that over 500,000 Syrians have been killed and millions have fled to neighbouring countries, but also to Europe, to the United States. And that doesn't include the internally displaced Syrians, which we don't have a definite figure on. One of the fallouts of the conflict has been the breakdown of different religious communities' ability to coexist the tolerance between ethnic communities, the lack of dialogue between different political sides, very much a polarisation of political opinion, something which has continued to be an issue today. But we'd be mistaken in thinking that this is something that has existed historically and is characteristic of Syria. Prior to the conflict, Syria was known for the level of tolerance and hospitality amongst Syrians. It was very normal to see that pluralism within Syrian society. You'd see mosques and churches and even synagogues side by side. Syria was known to have some of the oldest churches and mosques and the most intact religious buildings in the world. You saw religious minorities living, practicing, worshipping quite freely in Syria. For example, we had quite a thriving Christian community in Syria, a small but very visible Jewish community in the Jewish quarter in the old city of Damascus. We also had 
smaller sects from the Islamic community, from Shia to Alawis to Druze communities. And we had Armenians and we had Kurds as well, so non-Arab communities that lived in Syria. And these minorities comprised at least 20% of the Syrian population. Of course, the dominant group in Syria was a Sunni Muslim majority. Yet there was a recognition that all the different minorities, a patchwork of ethnic and religious identities was very much a significant and important characteristic of what it meant to be Syrian. This still is epitomized by the beautiful Umayyad Mosque, which is in the old city of Damascus. It's a Muslim place of worship, and yet it's maintained the old Byzantine mosaic facade. And inside you'll find still the tomb of John the Baptist. For Muslims, he would be known as Prophet Yahya. It was very normal to see Christians making pilgrimage to the mosque, observing and admiring this historical place alongside Muslim worshippers producing this pluralist ethos at the heart of Damascus. Another example very close to the Umayyad Mosque is the shrine of Sayyidah Zainab, which is a place of religious importance for Shia Muslims. And it was very, again, normal to see Shia pilgrims from Iraq and Lebanon coming to visit. They were able to do so with freedom and security. Very close by, you also had the Jewish quarter in the old city. These are all examples of that tolerance and that hospitality amongst the different religious groups in Syria. So what we're seeing today, this breakdown in, in communal relations, is not something that is historically normal for Syria. It does give hope that with the end of the conflict, and hopefully we will see an end to that conflict, that those relationships can be repaired. To understand the present and this recent history, we need to go further back to the Ottoman Empire. Syria is very much seen as an essential part of the Ottoman Empire. It was a center of trade and education and culture and indeed religion. Even prior to the emergence of Islam in the region, Syria was known as the area of Bilad Asham. Bilad Asham literally means the land to the north the land to the north of Arabia, to the north of Yemen, which was considered the heart of Arabia. It was an area that most merchants would have passed through. Through those trade routes, you had the spread of education and religious and political ideas. You saw a pluralism of philosophical and theological ideas, even if you look throughout Islamic history, some of the most important scholars of Islam were based in Syria and taught in Syria and spread their ideas in what was historically Bilad al-Sham. For example, Ibn Taymiyyah, known as a Sheikh of Islam, or Ibn Kathir, who wrote one of the most comprehensive compendium of stories of the life of the Prophet Muhammad. Ibn al-Qayyim, uh, who was a student of Ibn Taymiyyah, and also Imam al-Ghazali, known not just to the Muslim world, but to many philosophers and theologians. The interesting thing about these different names is that it reflects a diversity of religious opinions. So even today, Ibn Taymiyyah might often be associated with a Salafist interpretation of Islam, but his student, Ibn Qayyim, is more associated with a, a Sufi tradition, while Imam al-Ghazali draws a lot from Greek philosophy. Another example, Ibn Arabi, whose shrine is in Damascus, in the area of Ruqnadi, 
seen. It's seen to be coming from an esoteric, mystical tradition of Islam. And all of these ideas and traditions and practices coexisted amongst Muslims in Syria right up until the present day. Of course, you have some of the earliest roots of Christianity emerging in Syria. So the well-known phrase, the road to Damascus, the moment of conversion for St. Paul, comes through the area of Bilal al-Sham. And this is reflected by the communities that lived in Syria. That ethnic pluralism where you also had Kurds and Anatolians and Greeks and Armenians coming to live in what was the former Ottoman territory of Asham also continued to have a legacy through that tolerance between communities in Syria right through to the 20th century. So what changes? Initially we see in the 19th century increased incursions by the European powers throughout the region, throughout the Ottoman Empire. So gradually, some of that fragmentation already starts to occur. But the area, Bilad al-Sham, remains intact. And it's only after the First World War, when the Ottoman Empire came into the conflict supporting the Germans, that we see a change to this area that historically had been a cohesive unit. After the First World War, the Ottoman Empire collapsed and there was a scramble amongst European powers to take control of the territories that remained. And so we saw a carving up of Bilad al-Sham between different and newly created states. From it emerges Syria, Palestine, Jordan and Lebanon. And it's really important to remember that this is considered an artificial creation of states the people very much continued to feel a common background, a common ethnicity, common language, in many cases, common religion. So this division is something that's deeply resented by the people that lived in the area. In 1920, you have the formal establishment of British and French protectorates. And you had the French taking control or having influence over Lebanon and Syria, while the British had control over Jordan and Palestine. Now, it's very difficult to gauge any objective analysis of what the protectorates were like from the British and the French archival documents. But these protectorates were, in all but name, colonial territories. We can get some degree of objective analysis from the American archives. From those documents, we see the United States being particularly critical towards the French for what was considered to be a very heavy-handed and quite brutal approach to colonial rule where the French troops were very visible and there was an insistence on speaking the French language, overruling the local cultures and traditions in a way that the British were perhaps a bit more careful in avoiding, publicly at least. So what were the consequences of this political dynamic and the carving up of the region? There were two key impacts. The first was the deep and intense politicization of the local population. There was widespread grievance over the splitting up of Asham, particularly because families and communities had been divided across these arbitrary state boundaries. So the resentment was very deep. There was also a mobilization of the lower intelligentsia as well as the religious establishments, particularly expressed through an Arab nationalist anti-colonial ideology. This actually fostered a Muslim-Christian unity because it was a common grievance between communities. 
a relationship which really epitomized this unity, this anti-colonial solidarity, was the friendship that was struck up between Salahuddin Bitar, who was a Sunni Muslim, and Michel Aflaq, a Christian. Both were intellectual activists. They met at university and they came together to form the Ba'ath Party officially in 1946. The Ba'ath Party was motivated by an anti-colonial Arab nationalist ideology that was diametrically opposed to colonialism and later on opposed to Zionism. This is summed up in a quotation in one of their early political pamphlets where Michel Aflaq and Bitar argue, we saw nationalism simply as a struggle between the nation and the colonizer. In the country, those who helped the foreigner were called traitors and those who opposed them, nationalists. The founding of the Ba'ath Party in 1946 coincided with the French departure from Syria after widespread daily protests from the grassroots level all the way up to the landed classes. Though you had the removal of the French, what didn't change was that intense politicization of the local population and a real sense of vulnerability about external intervention because of this experience of colonization. So what we see in this period, in this very formative period, is the very organic emergence of bottom-up ideological politics, one that is not imposed from above and which is really rooted in that suspicion and mistrust of external forces. Once Syria gained independence, this politicization and anti-colonial current found its biggest champion in the newly formed Syrian army. The army was made up mainly of working class or peasant class Syrians who had actually borne the brunt of colonialism. They were not included in the patronage system that benefited a lot of the landed classes. So the army especially appealed to those who had historically been disenfranchised, which included minority religious communities, such as the Alawi community. What you saw is that the upper ranks of the army traditionally became associated with high-ranking members of the Ba'ath Party as well. The army was very much a place where ideological politics could be fostered and promoted. Two seminal events helped to entrench the role of the army in Syrian domestic and external politics, one regional and one global. And it really gives a sense of how external factors have consistently, historically played a role in Syrian politics, even after the ousting of the French and after independence, right up until the present day. The first and probably most significant event was the establishment of Israel in 1948. Syria had just gained independence in 1946, but with the establishment of Israel, only two years later, there was a sense that Syria was once again facing occupation. And this makes sense when we remember that Palestine was still seen essentially as a part of the greater Syria, as a part of that historic Bilad al-Sham. It wasn't seen as a separate entity. So many Syrians viewed the establishment of Israel as a form of occupation. Ever since the establishment of Israel, there were constant border skirmishes between Syria and the Israelis, the most significant of those conflicts with the most far-reaching consequences was, of course, the 1967 Arab-Israeli War, in which the Arab armies 
of Egypt, Syria and Jordan were all defeated by Israel in the space of six days. And in that time, Israel annexed and occupied the Syrian Golan Heights. Even after the disengagement agreements of 1974, the Golan Heights remains to this day occupied by Israel and is a continuing source of hostility and conflict between Israel and Syria. So that was the first significant event. The second event, a global event, that really affected Syria was the rise of the United States as a superpower and the start of the Cold War. Initially, Syria maintained a neutral stance in the Cold War, as did other Arab nationalist states. Syria anticipated that due to the United States' condemnation of imperialism and the colonial activities of the British and the French in the early part of the 20th century, that they would be a potential strong ally for the Syrian government. And in fact, Syria did reach out on several occasions to try and establish friendly ties with the United States. But their goodwill changed when it became very clear that the United States would give unequivocal support to the newly established state of Israel. It wasn't just the United States' increased alignment with Israel that was the problem for Syria. During the Cold War, particularly in the 1950s, Syria had a left-leaning government that would describe itself as loosely socialist. But the United States government misinterpreted this as evidence that Syria was soon to become a Soviet satellite. The irony in this was that, in fact, there was quite antagonistic relations between this socialist government in Syria and the communist movement that existed in Syria as well as the Soviet Union, because there was a sense that the Communist Party was acting like a Trojan horse to increase Soviet influence in Syria. The United States completely misread the dynamics of Syria's domestic politics. As a result, the United States engaged in heavy-handed interventionist policies. The most blatant example of this came in 1957, when the United States sponsored an attempted coup against the Syrian government. This experience pushed the Syrian government closer to the Soviet Union and contributed to a long-term arms deal between the two states. It marked, during the Cold War, Syria's transition from being in the neutralist camp very much to being a firm ally of the USSR. So these two factors, Israel and the Cold War, had a significant bearing on Syria's relations with other countries in the region. For example, the relationship between Syria and Egypt. Both states had initially a very close relationship because of their common Arab nationalist position. So close were they that there was briefly a union between the two states from 1958 to 1961 called the United Arab Republic. Despite the fact that this union broke up, that alliance was maintained right through the 1967 war. It was only with Egypt's closer relationship with the United States under Anwar Sadat, and finally the truce that was signed between Egypt and Israel in 1979, that that relationship broke down. Another example of how the Israel factor and the Cold War, as well as their anti-colonial ideology, shaped Syria's alliances is the relationship with Iran. We don't really see any kind of ties between the Shah and the Syrian government 
prior to 1979. But as soon as you have the revolution in Iran and the establishment of the Islamic Republic, we see a strong alliance being forged between a secular Arab nationalist Syria and a Shia Islamist Persian Iran. And this is one of the strongest alliances in the region right up until today, founded very much on their animosity towards the United States and Israel. So what about the Gulf countries who have a common Arab heritage with Syria? Well, because their conservative monarchies traditionally aligned to the United States, that has also meant the frosty relationship between Syria and the Gulf countries historically. That dynamic has become more nuanced and a lot more complex today because different Gulf states have supported different sides in the conflict. Now, what about Turkey? one of the most important regional powers in the Middle East. Historically, Syria had been a part of the Ottoman Empire, so it was very common to find Turks living in what became Syria because of the movement between peoples during the empire. After the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, you had the establishment of the Turkish Republic. And Turkey went on its own journey in which it had a much more pro-Western agenda and turned its face away from its historical Arab partners. That estrangement continued for much of the 20th century as Turkey became a vital NATO partner and a key strategic ally for the United States in the Middle East. Things changed, however, with the arrival of the AKP, the moderately Islamist government led by Tayyip Recep Erdogan in 2002. The AKP under Erdogan began to reorient its foreign policy to re-establish ties with its more traditional partners in the Middle East, was also a lot more vocal about the activities of Israel in the region, which previous Turkish governments had been very quiet on. And this change in foreign policy from the Turkish government with the arrival of the AKP meant there was a re-establishment of ties between Syria and Turkey. Of course, this relationship soured after the start of the uprisings in 2011, where Erdogan made a strategic decision to support the opposition against the Assad regime. Prior to the conflict, Erdogan had a very close personal relationship with the Syrian president Bashar al-Assad. What then of non-state organizations in the region? How does the Israel factor, as well as the animosity towards the United States, affect Syria's relationship with them? Well, Syria has been one of the most reliable backers of Hezbollah and Hamas, precisely because of their mutual enmity towards Israel. And the relationship between Hezbollah and Syria has strengthened as a result of the conflict. Hezbollah fighters have actually entered into Syria to fight on behalf of the Syrian regime, giving the need to support the resistance arc in the region as their justification. The relationship between the Syrian regime and Hamas has been somewhat more complex. Initially, Hamas was uncertain about which way it should side after the conflict began. It didn't want to be seen as supporters of an oppressive minority regime. And so it became a lot more cautious in the support that it gave to the Syrian government. But since then, as the conflict has worn on, 
Hamas has increasingly seen its political fortunes lying with the Syrian government. Recently, Hamas entered into talks with Russia, which seemed to signify that they are putting aside their earlier differences with the Syrian government and its allies in the conflict that we saw in 2011. Up until now, I've been talking about the international and regional context and how that has shaped Syria's politics. But of course, we can't overlook the domestic circumstances, in particular the role of the Assad family and how they have shaped Syria's politics. Before we talk about Bashar al-Assad, it's important to consider the influential role of his father, Hafez al-Assad. Hafez al-Assad came to power in 1970 following a coup. He was an Alawi, so he was from a minority sect in Syria, from the lower economic classes, and from a rural town near Latakia in northwest Syria. But he was able to rise in prominence in Syrian politics by entering the Syrian army. He was a staunch member of the Ba'ath in his teenage years. He was passionate about the ideology. He personally fought against Israel on several occasions, including in his formative years in 1948. Interestingly, al-Assad was the Minister of Defense and in charge of the air fleet that was completely routed in the 1967 Arab-Israeli war. It's clear that that experience had a long-lasting impact on al-Assad, one that was very personal and deeply felt. At home, Hafez al-Assad was able to bring about significant changes. He helped to centralize Syrian politics so that there were no longer competing sources of power. And he was able to bring together what had been an unstable and insecure country. But he did this with an iron fist. He established what became one of the most brutal but effective dictatorships in the entire region setting up a well-trained and pervasive security service. The change in leadership inspired a lot of fear, but it's also true to say that it also inspired grudging respect amongst a lot of Syrians because of the stability that it brought. That's not to say that there were no threats to Assad's authority. The most famous example would be the uprisings in Hama in 1982, which were brutally crushed by the regime, where the city of Hama was quite literally razed to the ground. That left an indelible mark on the psyche of Syrians. It really contributed to the sense of fear of the regime, as well as a sense that the regime was all-powerful and was able to crush any form of dissent. Despite his repressive policies at home, he was someone who retained credibility, perhaps even some legitimacy, because of his consistent foreign policy and egalitarian economic policies. In 2000, Hafez al-Assad died and was succeeded by his son Bashar al-Assad. Some things changed, some things remained the same under Bashar al-Assad. When he came to power, there was a lot of hope in the West that he would be a modernizing force for the country, perhaps even a democratizing, liberalizing force, partly because of his youth, partly because he was in fact educated in Britain and married a British Syrian woman. 
And he did liberalize politics to some extent, but those changes really were short-lived. And also the advantages was for a very small proportion of the Syrian population. In contrast to the policies of his father, the liberalization that occurred under Bashar al-Assad actually increased the gap between the rich and the poor, as well as the gap between the urban centers and the rural areas. Any hope for democratization or further liberalization came to an abrupt end three years after Bashar al-Assad came to power with the US-led invasion of Iraq in 2003. It's impossible to overstate the impact that the war had on Syria. A lot of the sectarianism from the Iraq war spilt over into Syria, destabilizing the political balance as well as the religious balance that had been maintained in Syria for years. Syria also absorbed roughly one million Iraqi refugees, which put a strain on welfare provision in the country. Syrians also faced the very real prospect that their country would be the next military target for the Bush administration. And this allowed the Syrian regime to increase its authoritarian grip on the population, using the threat of increased instability and potential invasion from the United States as an excuse for increased repression and extension of emergency law. So once again, the actions of other countries were dominating and dictating the domestic agenda for Syria. <laughs> 